Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In the 1910s, a group of Connecticut reformers formed a society aimed at solving a growing crisis, the spread of venereal diseases. The United States' entry into World War I provided this so-called social hygienist movement with an unprecedented opportunity to influence the sexual mores of Americans. In this episode, Connecticut Historical Society's Natalie Bellinger tells us how that worked out for these well-intentioned reformers, coming up in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. In May 2018, the Connecticut Historical Society opened a new exhibit called Facing War, Connecticut in World War I. It tells the story of several Connecticuts and their war service. The one who's most interesting to me is George B. Thayer. He was an attorney, a Spanish-American war veteran, an enthusiastic world traveler. He once rode a bicycle across the United States. And he was also a longtime member of the YMCA. Thayer wanted desperately to serve in France as a Y volunteer, He finally got his wish in November 1918, just after the armistice was signed. He would spend most of the next year in France catering to the American army as it slowly withdrew from its occupation. Thayer was in his 60s. According to the Hartford Current, he was the oldest man in Y service. Though proud of his war service, Thayer was also full of complaints about the role of the YMCA in France, and he blamed the army for corrupting the Y's mission. In letters he wrote for the Hartford Current, he exposed the many moral failures that he observed amongst the troops and amongst female Y volunteers. I'll let him tell you in his own words, as read by CHS intern Mitchell DePani. In a recent issue of the official YMCA publication, an appeal was printed requesting the Y girls not to drink and smoke. That is to say, in public places. And worse... One night, a dance was arranged for the men's sake, and some 40 Y girls came down from Paris, the 1,500 men dancing in relays with the 40 girls. By the way, to dance in good form, good Parisian form, the cheeks must be pressed close together. I mean this in all soberness. Last night... I noticed a tall young soldier and a short Y girl dancing together, not exactly in prescribed form, through no fault of either. Her forehead was pressed closely against his cheek. And even worse... One morning, while in Paris, I saw a lady Y worker, at a somewhat unusual hour, come out of a hotel accompanied by an officer to whom I had frequently sold cigarettes. These and other frolicsome stunts took place in a canteen, under my very presence. But worst of all, in Thayer's opinion, was the use of YMCA hotels by the Army as distribution centers for venereal disease treatments. He concluded that our government seems to have fallen down in regard to compelling our soldiers to keep their souls clean. Thayer's letters and the expose he published about the Y when he returned to the U.S. are a blast to read. He was a gifted writer with a very funny sense of sarcasm. Though I disagree with the compliment of one admirer who said that Thayer was funnier than Mark Twain. But while it's tempting to dismiss Thayer as an entertainingly prudish old fogey, that would be doing him a disservice. 
In fact, George B. Thayer was, for a few years anyway, a member of a Connecticut organization that aimed to eradicate Victorian prudishness surrounding the facts of life. This was the Connecticut Social Hygiene Society. Their goal was to improve public health by stemming the spread of venereal disease, and they adopted a multi-pronged approach. It included sex education for all age groups, as well as treatment for the infected. To learn more about this group, I spoke to Jennifer Miglis, librarian at the Hartford Medical Society Historical Library. This group was founded, it's not exactly clear from my records, 1910, maybe 1909. I have an envelope that says original members who signed Mrs. Hepburn's petition, Uh, but this group was founded by Thomas Hepburn and uh, his wife. Let me break in here just to say that, yes, that is those Hepburns. Dr. Thomas Hepburn was a Hartford Hospital urologist. His wife, Catherine Houghton Hepburn, was a suffrage leader. And their daughter, Catherine, would go on to become an actress. And they were concerned with the condition of women, I think, primarily. So they went out in 1909-1910 to gather signatures. And the petition reads, We, the undersigned, realizing the serious menace to humanity, moral, physical, and financial, of the diseases which have their origin in the social evil, agree to organize ourselves into a body for the purpose of studying the means, moral, sanitary, and administrative, which may seem to us the best suited to limit the spread of these diseases. So in essence, uh, this group was founded to try and prevent the spread of venereal disease, which was often contracted by men who visited prostitutes, the social evil, and then carried home to their unwitting wives and with disastrous consequences. So the petitions that I have were signed by 139 people, and at least 51 of them were doctors, but they certainly weren't all doctors. And they all kind of had this sense of social mission that they wanted to make women's lives better and safer, and and there was a certain moral aspect to this as well. When you read the list of members a few years down the line after their founding, it really does read like a who's who of Hartford society. You have Mayor Louis Cheney, you have Morgan Brainerd, who was the president of Aetna at the time, you have lots of clergy. I actually ran into a rabbi, Um, I think there was a bishop, there was just people that said reverends, but it did seem that there was a significant number of people who were religious, yeah. And many of the members also appear to have been active in the women's suffrage movement, correct? Very much so, yeah. And I think that makes sense, you know, as you look at what the mission of this group was, which was to prevent the spread of venereal disease, obviously that would be a big women's issue as much as men's. Sure. What was their mission. They're trying to curb the social evil, prevent prostitution from spreading venereal disease. What specific diseases are they talking about? Back then, the two biggies were gonorrhea and syphilis. Okay. In what ways did they seek to attack the social evil and venereal disease? Sort of what seems to have been their game plan? I think fundamentally it was education Mm -hmm. and trying to convince people to be clean living alligators. I mean, I I don't think they felt they could really get rid of prostitution. They were realists and um, and they were also physicians, many of them, and they understood that even if you treated prostitutes, they could be reinfected by the next John that came along and and if you weren't going to treat the men as well, that that was you just weren't going to be able to keep prostitutes disease free. I think that they just didn't feel that that was a productive avenue. So what they tried to do instead was to really appeal to people's 
sense of goodness and morality and um, and to educate people about where babies came from and maybe how disease was spread, although that wasn't as clear from their literature, but with the hopes that people would voluntarily abstain until marriage and kind of keep to the straight and narrow. So when you talk about education, what kinds, how are they delivering that education to the masses and who's their audience that they're targeting? Their audience was really broad. I think a lot of it was women, Mm -hmm. but um, they went to women's, you know, mother's clubs and they went to schools private schools, public schools, colleges, and they they had a lending library. In fact, I think they had four or six iterations of this that traveled the state so people could take things out and read about the evils of white slavery and things like that. And by white slavery, they mean prostitution. Yes, women being involuntarily kind of shanghaied and taken into slavery as prostitutes. But they also had publications, kind of propaganda, if you will, that were published in multiple languages. They spent a lot of money to print these things and have them translated into different languages. They got public records of people who had had babies recently, and then they would mail a little pamphlet to them about sex ed, I guess, a little bit after the fact. But (laughs) I think trying to just sort of educate people about sex in general and what was helpful in terms of preventing the spread of disease. Now, if you look at these pamphlets, they are like 10 pages of dense text in small print and no pictures. So, I mean, by today's standards, people getting something like that would just toss it in the trash. (laughs) Maybe people were better readers back then, but my suspicion is that a lot of those things wound up in the trash, too. But they do have pamphlets targeted. Some are targeted for young women, some for young men. Some are titled, What to Do If You Have Venereal Disease, uh, which would be kind of an interesting pamphlet to be caught reading, I suppose. (laughs) And, yeah, as you said, they're translated into, you have ones in your collection here in Polish, right? French, Italian, Spanish... They talk in the minutes here about translating them into Hungarian. They were really trying to be, you know, to target every population that was at least represented in Connecticut at the time. I don't know that they got them all, but they were trying to have a, to cast a broad net. They also did dramatic readings. There was a play called Damaged Goods, written by a Frenchman, and they actually paid Brentanos, which was a book publisher out of New York, to publish an edition of like 5,000 copies, I think that was the minimum, at some expense. And then they were handing these out to various interested parties and asking, you know, for a 50 cents contribution if you liked it. It was all about a young man who was engaged to be married and he has a one-night stand with a prostitute and becomes infected and then infects his wife and disaster ensues. So it was a cautionary tale. And they really promoted this play a lot. You see it in their minutes. They had um, they sponsored readings of it, and as I say, they actually spread the actual play around as much as they could too. That seems to be a major focus of their their brief, which is that they are pointing out that venereal diseases do not simply infect the quote unquote guilty. It's not just the men who are patronizing sex workers or the sex workers themselves. The men bring these diseases home. They infect the wife. They infect the children. They can ruin lives. And so they seem to be very concerned with getting that message across because what many young people might think, or young men at least might think, is sort of harmless fun 
is going to reverberate in your family, maybe down the generations. Yes. So there was two avenues to that. One was to target the man and say, you know, if you love your wife, think twice before you mess around because not only are you cheating on her, but you can bring home nasty diseases. And also to educate women about, you know, the male sex drive and, and to protect themselves. In case you're thinking that the Connecticut society might have been exaggerating the problems that STI posed to Americans in the 1910s, think again. In 1901, the New York County Medical Society commissioned a study. It indicated that as many as 8 out of 10 men in New York City had gonorrhea, and that between 5 to 18% of men in New York City had syphilis. Now, solid data on venereal disease could be hard to gather. One doctor called syphilis the despair of statisticians. People didn't like to talk about these diseases, and especially with syphilis, the symptoms could go away for a long time, leading people to think they were cured. On the other hand, early 20th century America was in the midst of the progressive era. Progressive reformers sought to solve the problems of urbanization by feverishly gathering statistics and using them to influence public policy and tackle problems. They pushed for fair labor laws, for clean water, for sewer systems, trash collections, more hospitals, a pure food supply, and they mounted a host of public health campaigns to stamp out infectious disease such as tuberculosis. This meant healthier lives and a better standard of living for Americans. So it makes sense that progressive era reformers would look to tackle sexually transmitted infections too. But venereal disease posed its own class of difficulty. The cloak of silence over all matters to do with sex was, to the eyes of reformers, a barrier that had to be breached to ensure the health of Americans. The very fact that they used the term social hygiene as a euphemism for sexual health and social evil for prostitution underscores the fine line they walked. Talking frankly about sexual matters would open them up to accusations of radicalism or immorality. For example, in 1914, a church group meeting in Hartford featured a speaker who was a school principal. His name was C.L. Ames. He spoke out against the teaching of sex ed in public school, which was a policy that the Connecticut Society for Social Hygiene advocated. He said that the subject was too delicate to be approached by school teachers who risked damaging the morals of youth by exciting too much curiosity about sex. Instead, Ames said, it was better to educate parents so that they could instruct their own children. The entry of the United States into the war was seen as both an enormous potential problem and an opportunity for the social hygiene movement and for progressives in general. After all, the war provided the chance to take 5 million American men from all walks of life and use army training camps to teach them clean habits. This would demonstrate the superiority of American ideals. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Let's take a minute to hear a message from Connecticut State Historian Walt Woodward. When we come back, Natalie tells us how the U.S. military approached social hygiene and how that played out in France for soldiers in World War I. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. 
You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date. The Connecticut Society announced in 1917 that it would spearhead an aggressive campaign to keep the conditions around the troops up to a high standard. The headline in the current proclaimed, Social Hygiene is Demanded by War. An aggressive campaign was needed. The Surgeon General reported in 1918 a venereal disease rate amongst troops of 13%, and in some camps the number was closer to 20%. So the drafting of these 5 million men into the army revealed that America indeed had a social hygiene problem. The military couldn't afford to reject new recruits with VD. One California doctor said, if you were to attempt to get an army without having men who had gonorrhea, you would not have an army. So what was to be done? Well, for one, the scale of the problem was large enough that small private organizations like the Connecticut Society couldn't handle it. The Secretary of War formed the Commission on Training Camp Activities in April 1917. It partnered with private groups like the YMCA, the Jewish Welfare Board, and the Knights of Columbus. The Commission took a page from local social hygiene societies like Connecticut's by putting heavy emphasis on education. Recruits were bombarded with pamphlets, lectures, and graphic pictures detailing the consequences of immoral behavior. In order to reduce temptations, the commission provided soldiers with clean forms of recreation. The most popular were sports, including baseball, basketball, volleyball, and boxing. The idea was to provide men with activities that emphasized physical fitness and manliness. As we learned from Jennifer, the Connecticut Society had attacked the sexual double standard, which painted sex as a necessary activity for men. The commission continued the attack on the double standard. You didn't have to sleep around to prove your masculinity. The manly thing to do was to keep oneself clean and strong so as to be the best possible soldier. After all, as their propaganda said, a man thinking below the belt is not efficient. The commission even used the most modern form of media to get their message across. A film called Fit to Fight, the first ever made by the government, told the stories of five fictional draftees. All are tempted by prostitutes, but only one, Billy Hale, a college quarterback, stays away from the women. Three of the other four end up with gonorrhea or syphilis. At the end of the film, Billy is taunted for his virginity and knocks his bully down with one punch, declaring that a man is not a coward because he won't go with a dirty slut. It's worth noting that the sexual ideology of the social hygiene movement before and during the war presented just two types of women, pure ones and fallen ones. Once the war started, prostitutes were no longer merely the social evil. They were actively helping the enemy by spreading disease. Fit to Fight made this pretty explicit. One of its title cards read, Women who solicit soldiers for immoral purposes are usually disease spreaders and friends of the enemy. Many cities embarked on programs of arresting and locking up suspected prostitutes without due process. The commission didn't just depend on scare tactics. They worked hard to limit the soldiers' access to sex workers. 
Any town with a training camp was pressured to shut down red light districts and to pass local ordinances against liquor. As one army pamphlet put it bluntly, gonorrhea and syphilis are distributed by prostitutes. If you want to avoid these diseases, you must shun all prostitutes. If you want to shun all prostitutes, cut out the booze. It's interesting to ponder how much the prohibition campaign was helped by the anti-VD campaign. Unfortunately for the army, they didn't exert the same kind of control over local conditions in France as they did at home. The sexual double standard was in full swing there. The French believed that access to sex workers was vital for the morale and even for the health of their fighting men. The French government licensed and examined sex workers to keep them free of disease, a system that the Americans rightly pointed out was flawed. The French, in return, offered to set up special brothels just for the use of American men, but were politely refused. Secretary of War Newton Baker said, For God's sake, don't tell this to the president or he'll stop the war. Having already spent time and money treating a high rate of infection amongst troops, the American military wasn't about to let its men go off to France to become physically and morally corrupted. Civilian agencies like the YMCA and the Army worked together to provide troops with clean entertainments, just like back home. The Army tried to limit leave to small towns where they assumed there'd be fewer prostitutes, but this doesn't appear to have been wholly successful. At least one story circulated that sex workers were found on the troop trains conducting business in the bathrooms. General Pershing, the commander of the AEF, ordered that the men be subject to semi-monthly inspections and required to report for chemical prophylaxis within three hours of exposure to VD. A man who contracted VD and could not demonstrate that he had taken this prophylactic treatment was subject to court-martial and loss of pay during treatment. Prophylaxis treatment stations were set up in army camps and in recreational facilities, including those run by the YMCA. You recall from the beginning of this episode the story of George Thayer, who objected so fiercely to the use of Y facilities for this purpose. The treatment in question consisted of antiseptic cleansing inside and out of the genitals. It was uncomfortable and embarrassing, and some men chose to risk infection rather than submit to it. And if it was administered outside that three-hour window, it could be ineffective. Still, many men took advantage of it. At the end of the war, the Army Surgeon General estimated that for every hundred soldiers who went on leave, 31 would show up to a prophylaxis station. Thayer claimed that one army doctor he knew was so overwhelmed with the number of troops who showed up one night that he gave up, threw supplies at the men, and told them to treat themselves. This part of the story reveals the central tension between the military and the social hygiene crusaders. The army was interested in keeping men fit to fight. The crusaders wanted to remake Americans moral so that VD would become a thing of the past. If they gave up the sexual double standard that encouraged men to indulge their desires, the problem would be solved. Treatment for those already infected was necessary because it was needed to protect their wives and children. But post-exposure prophylaxis wasn't treatment. It was licensed for men to indulge and then wipe the slate clean. The same logic applied to condoms. A couple of years before the war, the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, endorsed the use of medical prophylaxis, that post-exposure treatment, to protect those who showed willful disregard of the laws of decent society but he refused to authorize the distribution of condoms. He said it was wicked and immoral to seem to encourage men to indulge themselves. 
In other words, if all the lectures and pamphlets and scary movies and YMCA-sponsored dances with respectable girls and all the boxing matches and baseball games didn't deter you from sin, the military couldn't afford for you to get venereal disease. But you'd have to endure an uncomfortable, humiliating hour in the prophylaxis station in the middle of the night, which might impress on you the error of your ways. Daniels noted that he'd been criticized for refusing to allow condoms to be distributed to sailors, and there was a conflict in the military over whether to emphasize the moral over the practical in preventing venereal disease. Many army leaders were afraid that too moralistic a tone would turn off the troops. They wanted to keep the men fit for service, not make saints out of them. Still, it seems like the moralists won. The U.S. was the only military not to issue condoms to its troops in World War I. Josephus Daniels and George Thayer would have disagreed with each other over what kinds of intervention constituted implicit acceptance of the sexual double standard. But they would have agreed that the ultimate end of the social hygiene movement was to reform the moral character of Americans and eradicate sexually transmitted infections through self-control and monogamy in marriage. As a member of the YMCA, Thayer could afford to draw the line more strictly, but the military had a war to fight. How successful were the efforts to keep the American Expeditionary Force clean? Well, in a post-war report, the American Association of Social Hygiene gave itself big pats on the back. It had helped the government produce what it said was the cleanest army in the world. More so, it had brought about a new attitude in American society, in which people were prepared to frankly discuss sexual problems and the consequences of vice. The population had become accepting of sensible sex education in public schools. And they said, our government is committed to a policy and program of promoting the moral welfare of the army and civilian population. But they were getting ahead of themselves just a little bit there. The war came at the pinnacle of the progressive era, a time in which reformers crafted public policy solutions to all kinds of problems in American life. But in the following decade, the federal government abandoned much of its wartime intervention in social life. The national mood was mirrored here in Connecticut. The Connecticut Social Hygiene Society closed up shop in 1921 out of funds and turned over its library to the National Association, which Dr. Thomas Hepburn had also helped to found. Disease rates shot up after the war. Ironically, the social hygienists had given Americans better ways to track the spread of venereal disease, but not necessarily better ways to prevent it. It was widely reported in 1930 that an astonishing one out of every 10 Americans suffered from syphilis. In 1935, Connecticut mandated that every couple be tested for syphilis before marriage. The Hartford Current reported that within five months of this law, the marriage rate dropped 50%, though it couldn't say exactly why. Within a few years, that law was being given credit for dropping the rate of babies born with congenital syphilis by more than half. That blood test requirement lasted until 2003. Why did venereal rates climb in the 1920s and 30s, even after the social hygienists broke that conspiracy of silence? Well, it's complicated, and the full answer is beyond the scope of this episode to address. But part of the answer might be that that high school principal, C.L. Ames, remember him complaining about sex education in public schools? Well, maybe he wasn't totally wrong that sex education might excite curiosity in young people. Even as the moral reformers called for sex education to help Americans make more moral choices, and to them that was abstinence before marriage, the very nature of sex education put talk 
of sex into the mainstream. Current Opinion magazine declared as early as 1913, a wave of sex discussion seems to have invaded this country. Our former reticence on matters of sex are giving way to a frankness that would startle Paris. It has struck sex o'clock in America. Journalist H.L. Mencken described the effect of this consciousness of sex on young women. He said, the flapper of 1915 has forgotten how to simper. She seldom blushed. It is impossible to shock her. She saw damaged goods without batting an eye and went away wondering what the fuss over it was about. Reformers wanted to change the sexual double standard to encourage chastity for both sexes, but it seemed that lots of young people thought differently. Instead, said Hartford native and feminist Charlotte Perkins Gilman, young women in the 20s were now accepting the masculine assumption that the purpose of sex is recreation. Remember George B. Thayer's disgust at Parisian-style close dancing? Now imagine his horror at the behavior of the new woman of the 1920s, who drank and smoked openly, who wore short skirts and shorter hair, and danced the bunny hug. The mind boggles. And what happened to our friend George Thayer? Well, when he got back home, he wrote an expose of YMCA sins in France, which included numerous stories of financial malfeasance in addition to the sexual immorality that he said the Y turned a blind eye to. He sent copies to Y offices throughout the country, as well as to corporate CEOs, college presidents, public libraries, the governor, every member of the Connecticut congressional delegation, and to the War Department. He caused such embarrassment for the Y that in 1920, they asked him to resign his position as the physical education director for the Hartford branch. Today, you can look through his collection of war service papers at the Connecticut Historical Society. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jennifer Miglis of the Hartford Medical Society Library. This episode was produced by Natalie Bellinger, Adult Programs Manager at the Connecticut Historical Society. The Connecticut Historical Society's exhibition, Facing War, Connecticut in World War I, is on view through November 2018 at the Connecticut Historical Society in Hartford. You can view archives of the Connecticut Social Hygiene Society at the Hartford Medical Society Library at UConn Health Campus in Farmington. Read more stories about Connecticut in World War I in Connecticut Explored Spring 2017 and Winter 2014-2015 issues. Subscribe or buy back issues at ctexplore.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their action. More at bowman.legal. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another great Connecticut history story on Grading the Nutmeg.